You're listening to The Big Cast C-Suite Edition, your source for leadership insights and inspiration with John Jan Clays. Welcome to this edition of C-Suite Interviews brought to you by The Big Cast Network. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, John Jan Clays. And as most of you know, I have a day job and it's leading Partners Federal Credit Union as its president and CEO. And I'm also the founder of the CEO Corner, which is an online community that I created about two years ago where leaders can share ideas, where we can learn and grow together. One of my leadership practices that I share on the CEO Corner is doing interviews from and with people from across the business spectrum, looking for ideas to really improve my leadership practice. I believe that we can learn from folks from across the business spectrum because we're all working on very common problems and business themes today, for example, like digital transformation. Well, that practice is the genesis of this show, um, doing interviews in the field. So we call it C-suite interviews. It's also a practice that uh, I discuss in my leadership book, Doing What Matters, How Leaders Can Help Individuals and Organizations Thrive. I'm happy to report about two years in now between the interviews, the blogs, this podcast, Uh, that the community is growing. It's pretty great. You know, we started out with just a couple hundred listeners and then it moved up to 2,500 in between the Big Cast Network and uh, C-Suite interviews at the CEO Corner. We're up to about 10,000 listeners every month. So the community is growing and it's thriving. And in part because I'm hearing from folks and I'd like to read to you a recent email that I received from one of our listeners. So, So here it is. John, I think it's pretty outstanding that you had Peter Drucker as a mentor His works are a must-read content for all leaders, in my opinion. The information definitely hit home. Our CU, Credit Union, is at the crossroads where our resources are stressed. We have too many initiatives going on at the same time, so progress is slow on everything. And it's clear to me more than ever that at our size and complexity, we cannot continue our current project management framework. I've started building a new framework for prioritizing projects, focusing resources, building management systems that allows leaders to track progress and make course corrections more quickly. I think my reading of your book and finding your podcast was timely to say the least. These are both helping me shape my thinking and building our new framework. So thank you to this listener for sending on that feedback. And that was my hope at the very beginning of setting up this leadership community is that we would have one another to lean on, learn from, and and be inspired from one another's work. So thank you to our listener for that. Okay, so let's move into today's interview. It's with a mentor of mine, Dean Hallett. Dean and I met some 15 years ago while I was interviewing for my first CEO role at Vista Federal Credit Union. Dean and I worked together for a couple years. Uh, It was Dean who was a board member of the credit union. He was also part of the search committee where we first met. And if you read the acknowledgments in my book, I had this to say about Dean. As the CFO at Fox Entertainment, Dean Hallett modeled the way for this newly minted CEO what leadership grace in the boardroom would look like. There was a lot to learn from Dean as a mentor. And while we only worked together for two years in the context of board member and CEO, we continued our relationship over the years. He's been gracious to meet with me, continue to mentor, and help me think about the role of leadership. And in this interview, Dean and I explore Dean's professional journey, as I said, the CFO of the Walt Disney Company and 20th Century Fox, his thoughts on leadership approaches, which he describes as authentic leadership, and lessons learned while leading an enterprise-wide digital transformation at 20th Century's Fox. He also offers ideas about these kinds of transformational efforts and possible derailers that leaders should be on the lookout for. 
So without further delay, I hope you enjoy this interview with Dean Hallett. Hey, Dean. Welcome to the show. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. Oh, man. I've been looking forward to having you talk to our listeners about your work experience because, uh, you know, I followed your career and it, there's so much there to learn from. And maybe that's a good place to start is give us an overview of your professional journey, you know, kind of where it's been and, and also to where it's going. Where do you think it's all heading? I grew up in Southern California. Yeah. And I'm in the entertainment industry, but it's not something that I looked for early on. And I don't know if that's typical or not. Mm. I actually followed in my father's footsteps. I went to work in public accounting mm. for what was uh, Ernst & Winnie at the time for about okay. seven and a half years. Mm. And what I realized as I went through there was I wanted to be more forward-looking. And uh, luckily, I got an offer from one of our clients, Anthony Industries, Anthony Bulls, to go to work there. Spent about two and a half years with them. And that is when I first was working in private industry and really started to get a hold of what I could bring to a company because it was a small management team. Hmm. And I got to be involved in all kinds of areas of the company and see how all the pieces fit together. So I was involved in how to build a pool better, cheaper, faster, how to market the pools, Hmm. how to deal with product um, litigation for drunk people that had gone off a diving board and broken their neck and were blaming the construction Uh, design of the pool and so forth. But swimming pools wasn't really going to be my deal long term. And mm. I had a friend who had his foot in the door at Disney. Mm. He wanted to, me to go to this interview. And I put him off for a while because it was in the audit department. And they had just left audit. Okay. And realized I wanted to be more forward looking. So I wasn't really sure that that was consistent with what I was looking for. But he um, showed me that mm. they had a track record of placing people into the business units after one to two years. Mm. So I went into the role doing all my audits and consumer products because that's where the biggest backlog was. Mm. And my peer who was on the studio side found out about an opportunity that was available in motion picture marketing finance. And he went to our boss and our boss thought I was a better fit and he Mm. recommended me for the job. And suddenly I was in the entertainment business. (laughs) Never had looked for it. And so many times people will interview saying, oh, I've always wanted to be in the entertainment. I'm like, Really? Why? Because that never occurred to me when I was a kid. Disney was a great training ground. I worked my way up. It's the place where I learned how to communicate with non-traditional business people. I was dealing with creative marketing people that were creating materials. They were being rewarded and incentivized based on whether or not a movie opened. Hmm. Not about whether the movie was profitable. Uh, So I had to find common ground where we could Hmm. find ways to be more efficient, more effective without getting in the way of the creative process. Hmm. And that was a, a fine balance, a bit of a high wire act, but I, I think I got pretty good at it. Mm. And ultimately, the CFO made me his number two, mm. and then he got in a little bit of a tiff with the chairman. And so uh, when that happened, suddenly I was elevated into the role of CFO. And I remember somebody saying to me that I had been recommended to be the CFO because I knew how to talk to the chairman. And I truly believe that that's came from the communication skills that I developed while I was working with the marketing creatives. Okay. That they knew I wouldn't get in the way of the creative process. Mm. Nothing against Disney. This was a previous era, but under Michael Eisner and uh, the Strat Planning Group that was in place at the time, they were very aggressively uh, inserting themselves into the business. I remember this, yeah. And it was really discouraging for a lot of people. It was discouraging for me. felt like everybody had walls up and they were protecting their silos. And... I knew the CFO over at Fox. He was leaving and he gave my name Mm. as a recommendation for somebody who could, who they should talk to. And I went to work for Fox and it was completely apparent to me on day one that it was different. Mm. 
I walked in, the CEO came up, he gave me a big hug. He said, you're the CFO. You can go to any meeting you want and get involved in any project you want. You don't need to ask permission. There are no walls here. There are no walls. There were mm-hmm. silos. Yeah. Which is way, and, and that was interesting because the silos were for very different reasons. Mm-hmm. The silos were because Rupert Murdoch drove each business individually to be the best they could be. Okay. And so they didn't take time to lift their head and see if anything they were doing was affecting a sister division. Mm-hmm. They would just drive forward and they would, they would get, create, build, whatever, anything they needed to make their business work. Sounds like islands of excellence almost. Islands of excellence, but a lot of inefficiency. Okay. Because people, you had repetition of people building the same things to support their businesses. Hmm. So I saw an opportunity to come in and find ways to be efficient, to build services that could support multiple businesses. I had some shared services experience while I was at, at Disney, which was really valuable for me about how to build teams and address those issues. And so I was able to look at that and say, okay, I can add value there. Mm. Uh, the other thing where I immediately saw that I could add value was I went to Fox right after 9-11. The training budget had been cut to I zero. didn't make that connection on that. Okay, yeah, 9-11. And it, it was clear that people were expected to learn how to be leaders mm. by osmosis. Okay. They would ele- it's the Peter principle. You mm. would elevate people and elevate them, and suddenly you'd realize that they didn't know how to manage a team of people at all. Mm. So I found opportunities to bring in some leadership training and be a part of that. Mm. So I had at Fox, I had places to play that were, for me, not just your traditional financial CFO. I got to be involved in operations. I got to be involved in development and leadership and training, development and so forth. So it gave me a lot of room to play. It was a much bigger arena for me. And that, in my last year and a half at Fox, is where I really focused. We Mm. had a new chairman. We were looking to change the culture to be more collaborative and open to really create an environment where there would be more creativity, more innovation. And I was able to lead that initiative. And now that I've left Fox, that's really what I'm excited about. How can I pass that on? How can I advise CEOs? How can I, you know, should I sit, can I sit on boards? Can I go into companies and do mm. a version of a leadership or high potential training for their middle management to build their bench? so that they are ready for the next steps. Um, and that's what I'm preparing to do. Yeah. So how do you unleash all that power between those I- islands of excellence, yeah, kind of like exactly. the, the integration, coordination, the, the power of all of them working together? Right. That's fascinating. You know, during your time too, Dean, at 20th Century, you experienced digital transformation that was happening. It's happening in every industry, pretty profoundly in the entertainment business. And just thinking about that a little bit, you know, what did you see in the environment that said, hey, you know, we probably need to do something? You know, what was your vantage point that you saw that was happening in the space? It really was twofold and it was it was painfully <laughs> obvious. Um, VOD, video on demand, became something that people were talking about more and more. And it wasn't just going to be pay-per-view that people were used to where every couple of hours a new movie would start on your cable platform. This was on-demand, whether it was going to be on a computer or whether it was going to be uh, through some on-demand service through your TV provider, you were going to be able to watch video. And so you knew the world was changing. The head of all of Fox at the time, Peter Turner, came to me one day and he said, he goes, look, we're doing all these VOD deals. He goes, I hope you're prepared to have our product ready for delivery to all these platforms, so they got something to show. And I hmm. said, hey, that's a really good idea. Maybe I should look into that, <laughs> not realizing it was my responsibility because I, I was, hadn't been responsible for a supply chain before. But I knew that I knew there was an opportunity to develop something that could service all of our businesses hmm. because the last thing I wanted to see, again, was each business building their own digital supply chain. Yeah, That would be incredibly efficient. I was able to 
get a group of people together, and I thought about it. I said, first of all, especially as I look back on it now, what's really important, you need to have somebody who is championing you or giving you the authority from the top. And I had that because I had Peter Turner saying, you better make this work. Yeah. yeah. Then I said, okay, well, what do we want to do? Do we want to outsource this? Do we want to bring it, bring it in-house? Not only the answers, I didn't know the questions to ask. Hmm. So I knew I needed to assemble a team. And it included people from IT, engineering, sales, marketing, everybody. Because we needed to make sure that we were looking at it from all the different angles that we weren't missing anything. Mm -hmm. And I brought the team together and I made sure that they all had a chance to present how what their vision was for it. Mm -hmm. How they would do it if they were going to do it. So everybody could hear those different perspectives. What told you to do that? I don't gut instinct. Okay. Because I I didn't know. Mm That I want, I knew I wanted to hear everybody. You know, I could hear one point of view, but what if they were wrong? Yeah, I just felt like I wanted to hear from everybody. Yeah. Um, so I think it was just instinct. Okay. And when they came out and presented their vision, we spent some time talking about, okay, so what are the guiding principles we want to have in this thing? Let's see if we have some common ground here. Mm. It really came down to, you want if you're going to make a digital asset, mm. make it once and use it everywhere. That mm. was sort of the philosophy. Yeah. Don't rebuild, don't recreate, make it once and have it available. And once we got everybody around that vision, a lot of their own personal agendas sort of melted away hmm. because they would have been inconsistent with that, where they wanted to control something, or they wanted to be able to have this and not let somebody else have it, which is a little bit of history there. Yeah, yeah. And go, so going through that process and letting everybody have a voice allowed them to feel like they were part of the strategy and that they had been heard, and therefore they we formed alignment. Okay. And I think alignment is really critical mm-hmm. in order to get something like that done. The one other thing I would mention, and I'll just really quick, when I did shared services at Disney, I had a mandate from Tom Staggs, who was the CFO at the time, who said, Dean's the executive sponsor for shared services, whatever he says goes. No avenue of appeal, no opting out. That made it incredibly efficient because I could go out, listen to everybody, and make sure yeah. I figured out what was important to them. Yeah. And they would feel like they'd been heard and they could they could get aligned. At Fox, I, I had support from the top, but I didn't have a mandate. I didn't have somebody saying, everybody has to do this. There's no opting out. So I constantly had people positioning themselves politically, trying to undermine what we were trying to do. People, not necessarily just high up, people in an organization that maybe yeah. felt our job was threatened. It became a much longer process to get the thing off the ground than I think it would have been otherwise. So... Sometimes while a mandate might feel like you're jamming something down somebody's throat, yeah, it's um, it, it can be really valuable. So through your process, you came up with those two guiding principles. Give our listeners what was the amount of time it took you to get there, Dean, to do that? You know, you brought this cross-functional team together. You guys decided on these two principles. Is this something that took a year? Is this something it that took, took about? Huh. The, the first part of the process of bringing the people together, that was really fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then selling it in was what took probably, um, it probably took two years. Yeah. And it could have been done in months. Okay. So we lost, I think, a year and a half uh, in doing that. And then even once we really started building it, mm-hmm. we still had these groups out there that were immediately saying, well, look, that's not that's messed up. This didn't get delivered. This is wrong. Even though the processes that we started with were the processes that they had been doing. Yeah. where their order entry system essentially was email. Hmm. You couldn't find the status of an order. We were trying to build yeah. a system while we were doing this where we would have transparency to the process all the way along, and every business could see where things stood. Yeah. We weren't there yet. We were using the old processes. But anything they could do to try to influence for it to go back to them. But I was relentless. 
Yeah. There was no way that it made any sense to, to build this in more than one place. It's nice to have those higher order aims, right? They're the yeah. guardrails to get you to where the vision is, where it absolutely needed to go. Right. Um, somewhere in here, I'm, turning, I'm hearing a story about alignment. Can you just talk about you know the different colors of that, the different aspects of that, and your thoughts on alignment? Yeah, I think that's a good idea because there's a lot of confusion around it. Mm. Sometimes I, I think it's best for me to contrast a couple of other things. So compromise. Mm. Compromise is not alignment. Compromise is like, okay, well, if you give me this, then I'll give you that. That may not be the best solution for the whole. Mm. Um, and that, that, that's, I think that's sort of like 50, people are in 50-50. They aren't necessarily in 100%. Mm. Conformity can be even worse mm. where people say, okay, yeah, okay, I'll get in line and I'll support it. And they're just waiting for the first thing to go wrong where they can say, I told you so, or maybe even trying to create the first thing to go wrong. Mm. True alignment comes from being transparent, letting people be heard, empowering your teams, decentralizing authority. I think the best way for me to describe it is I had an opportunity to meet retired General Stan Crystal. Hmm. He's the one who took over uh, in fighting al-Qaeda and terrorism and had the special ops forces for all the different branches of government. None of them liked each other, Mm -hmm. these different branches, because they all thought they were better and the reality is they were very much the same. Hmm. What he did is he realized very quickly that everybody was trying to roll information all the way up to him hmm. and have him make a decision. And at the time, they were doing about, I think, three to four raids a month. Okay. And they were getting their asses kicked. They hmm. had all the best equipment. They had hmm. all the scale. But they weren't versatile enough. They weren't uh, agile enough in order to be responsive. Hmm. And, and by the time information went all the way up the ladder and back down, things had changed. So what he did is he started holding a conference call, and he started with about 100 people, and I think ultimately became 1,500 people. And he would share, this was once a week, he would share everything that he knew so that everybody out there had complete information. And then he would talk through different scenarios about, with this information, if he were looking at something, how he would think about it mm-hmm. and how he would look to take action so that people would sort of see what his thinking process was. And the more he did that, the more people be able became able to do that on the ground themselves and know that they were doing it in a consistent manner with his vision. Okay. And that is alignment. That is where you have a shared vision, shared mission, shared strategy, and people are making decisions that are consistent with that. And that's why I say you can't be 50-50. You need to be all in. When they did it, they actually got to a point where mm. they were doing more than one rate a day. And they actually were... were Picked up the velocity they, of they their work. They completely yeah. changed things. Okay. Just, in today's world, in today's business world, there's not enough... It used to be that one person at the top of a company would have enough bandwidth mm. to drive everything. Yeah. And it's just not the case anymore. Yeah. You have to empower your people, but you also want to know that mm. they're operating within a framework mm. that is consistent with where you're trying to take this. I love the idea that he talked out loud what was in his head and what the framework was that he used. You know, I'm sure he was yeah. open to hearing other frameworks, yeah. but at least people said, okay, I can see how you're getting from A to B. Got it. And and, you know? and this is the one thing I look at. Studios are so afraid to release, uh, to communicate with broader teams within their company about what a marketing team is doing. Hmm. Afraid that the message will get out and then they'll lose that. Here you've got 1,500 people who are out there getting information. I know they took an oath to defend the United States. Yeah. But all these people getting all the inside information and our national security is at stake. 
Yeah. And I don't know that the bar is as high about a, a trailer getting out. Well, there's something in there. <laughs> you know? Well, there's something in there saying, and I trust you. Yeah. That, oh. you, that you can think like I can yeah. think, and I trust you with the information. That's a, just a powerful yeah. message in itself, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, hey, a lot of folks who listen to this podcasting are emerging leaders, and they want to do what you've done, you know, the trail that, that you've blazed. You know, kind of thinking about that. If you're an emerging leader, what advice would you have for them? What are some of the thoughts? I, I think there's a couple areas I would focus on. I think if you want to be the kind of leader that it takes today, where you can create these high-performing cross-functional teams to address issues where you're not, you don't have the ability to control every single decision along the way, the way you can create that team is, number one, I think the most important thing is authenticity. Mm. People need to know that you're open, that you're willing to share information, that you want them to collaborate, that your actions are matching your words, hmm. because if they don't believe that you are being authentic with them, then they're going to be uh, they're going to be careful. They're going to be reluctant to be open. They're going to be reluctant to take risks. All those things are essential because in today's world, you have to move so fast. You need to be taking risks. Hmm. If everybody is hesitant because of I like that message. They don't have that connection. I think that's 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 a problem. So yeah. and that takes open and honest, transparent dialogue and feedback. So the team is constantly openly communicating with each other. And that starts from the top. Mm. And when I say the top, it doesn't have to be the CEO. Mm -hmm. Even with your own group, if you're the leader, be that role model for them. Be open, be transparent, be authentic, and allow them to be the same. I always tell people, you might as well be yourself because there's so many well-educated people in the world today. A lot of them have great skills. What sets you apart is who you are. Mm. So be authentic and be real and be open. And the more you do that, I think it creates that trust. The second piece that's important for the leader is to be self-aware. Again, there's not enough bandwidth, there's not enough expertise probably in one individual to solve all the problems. So know where your strengths are, know where your weaknesses are, build a diverse team, hire and invest in your people, hire people that are smarter than you mm -hmm. because you will be better for it because they're going to see things that you might miss mm -hmm. and then the whole organization wins. Mm -hmm. So I think the... I think, you know, and, and when you invest in your people, the loyalty level goes up so much higher. Oh, absolutely. Um, 100% agree with you there. Um, we have a lot of shared thoughts there. It's like, you know, you can just hear and talking the, the amount of experience that you have. And a lot of that is what we catalog is the knowledge that we have going forward. And some of that comes from victories. Some of that comes from setbacks. You know, they're equally as important, I think, as learning opportunities. Maybe you have one that you could share with our audience, either something that really was a breakthrough for you as a victory or a setback that really informs who you are today. I don't know that I view them as setbacks or victories, but I certainly view them as wake-up calls. Okay. <laughs> um, there's a couple, two or three I can give you really quick. Yeah. Uh, I grew up in Southern California. Hmm. My exposure to the world was uh, the LA Times and Walter Cronkite. Okay. I moved to the UK for a year when I was in public accounting, right after the Iran-Contra affair. All of the Europeans were so worldly, so well-versed in the politics, hmm. I felt completely inadequate that I couldn't carry on an intelligent conversation about all the ins and outs of what was happening. Yeah. And it really changed my focus. It really, it really got me to take the initiative to get informed. Hmm. Uh, it even affected my, my kids' college decisions eventually because when they were, I'm a USC Trojan yeah. through and through. Yeah. My son, I said, you might want to think about going out to Southern California and getting a different perspective of the world. I would tell my kids all the time, Southern California is not the real world. <laughs> So that was a wake-up call. I think when digital came, 
I was giving it lip service for a while. I was using all the buzzwords. You know, it's 1080p or is it 720p or is it what's the bit rate? And yeah. Not really knowing what I was talking about. And not that I had to really understand the te- underlying technology, but I had to have a context that mm-hmm. I could speak from. So when people came to me with issues, I would actually be intelligent about seeing where it fit in that, in yeah. that framework and, yeah. and go from there. I told people, I said, don't become obsolete. Do what I'm doing. Read about it. You know, don't don't get lost in the left behind in the analog world. Uh, go to seminars, whatever it takes. Get educated, understand because this change is coming. Yeah, and it's going to get faster and faster. And lastly, I, I think I'd go back to the to the mandate thing. Uh, there's a couple times where I've been trying to drive initiatives, and I said a mandate is can be really really valuable. I think where I've gotten caught a couple times is believing I had a mandate and then realizing I didn't. Uh. And when you're out there and you're advocating for behavior to be a certain way and talking about that will be rewarded. And then what happens is suddenly out of your control, bad behavior, behavior inconsistent with those guidelines is being rewarded because somebody has put that individual uh, as being more important than that what we're trying to change in terms of culture and so on and so forth. Yeah. Making sure that you really have a mandate. With, and I think that's just ongoing communication to make sure it doesn't start dropping below the radar. Yeah. God, those are those are powerful messages. You continue to learn. I talk about there's a lot of ways to learn from your own experience, but also the experience from others. You know, and I'm wondering if there's anybody who is a big influence in you, and sometimes that's somebody in history or somebody that you actually cross paths with that kind of inform who you are. Is there such a person in your in your experience? I there was, but I I, I, I I'm starting to change it. Yeah, only because I'm, I want to. I, I don't know if I want to sound more current because <laughs> it sort of sounds so old. Yeah. Um, I always put a lot of uh, focus on uh, John F. Kennedy and what he did in dealing with first the Bay of Pigs and then the Cuban Missile Crisis. Hmm. And in the Bay of Pigs, it was a perfect example of groupthink where everybody was sort of forced to have his opinion. And it went wildly wrong. And then when he did the Cuban Missile Crisis, he was smart enough to realize that maybe his viewpoint wasn't the only one that should be heard. And he actually allowed people to meet and talk without him in the room so that other points of view would get expressed. I think now I talked about General McChrystal. Yeah. Building a team, completely informing them, allowing them to make decisions, giving them the rope to do that, empowering them like that. Um, that is how I approach my teams all the time. Hmm. And I think it's a perfect example of what it takes in business today. So he's, he's my new guy. Yeah, I like the new guy. <laughs> and I like the old guy, too. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a fan of, of some of stuff that John F. Kennedy did, like moonshots, right? Yeah. That who you become by the things we choose to do, sure. the hard thing, yeah. is a good thing. You know, that there's, there's a lot of genius in what he asked us to do, you know. So, obviously, you have a framework for learning that you continue to update. I'm curious, if I were to look at your iPad or you're on your desk, you know, at your office, you know, tell us a little bit about that. How do you synthesize and what are you reading these days? I still, you know, I still get some traditional news. I look at uh, the Wall Street Journal. I uh, get information. Obviously, being in the entertainment industry, I'm looking at entertainment news daily to see what the moving pieces are. But I've been giving more of a focus to reading books on leadership. Yeah. Old ones and new ones, because I think some yeah. of these don't, the, the lessons really don't go away. So, Built to Last, Jim Collins, Yes, that book talks about driving a culture, and I, I'm so focused on culture right now, it's like how that culture can really become something that sustains, even when the people who were leading it leave, because there's so much momentum within the culture itself. Yeah, Collaboration begins with you, 
uh, by Ken Blanchard. He actually did the One Minute Manager. And yes. He wrote Collaboration Begins With You in a very similar that. way. It's like okay. it's written like a story of there's this thing going on on a project and there's somebody trying to undermine it. How do you create alignment? Yes. Uh, how do you deal with the squeaky wheels? And, and it's called what again? Say that again. It's called Collaboration Begins With You. Okay, good. Okay. So different books, but I have to be honest with you. When I look at my growth, I'm an experiential learner. Mm. And with the leadership trainings, the high potential trainings that I've done, I facilitated, I find that I grow as much as they do, as much Mm -hmm. as the participants do in the programs, because I find every group is different. I need to find ways to help draw out the leader in them. So I am looking at them and saying, how do I be my most authentic self day in and day out? How can I adjust and adapt to be there for them? That teaches me to be a leader in new ways all the time. So I think, and, and the thing about experiential learning to me is it really sticks. Hmm. When we do those leadership trainings, we do experiential exercises. So it's one thing to tell somebody, you need to work together, you need to collaborate. If you work together, the result will be better. It's another thing when you put them through a couple exercises in a row, where even in the first exercise, they think they got it. Yeah. And then you put them in the next exercise and they realize they go right back to their old habit. Hmm. So it it gets their attention, and, and it's the same for me. I can catch myself more effectively when I do it that way. Yeah. So being a leader takes a fair amount of energy, you know, and you found a way to concentrate it and get yeah. a, you know a high return on investment with what you do. Yeah, I'm sure you understand that yourself. I try to. <laughs> I try to be a good student and never stop being a student. Yeah. You know, but there's a piece of this that is just the executive wellness, executive energy, that renewal piece. And I know that you're really committed to it on a really high level. So maybe just talk about your thoughts about that. And then maybe share, if you don't mind, a little bit about what are you doing? You know, what does it look like, you know, to rebuild the energy and the wellness piece that we're all talking about? You know, I've, I've, I don't even remember where I heard this so long ago, but mm-hmm. it was work to live, don't live to work. Okay. And I really, I'm a big believer in that. I got mm-hmm. some criticism for it at times where people saying, oh, are you taking vacation again? But I find that when I have a chance to step away and decompress and come in with a fresh perspective. And by the way, you can get out, even just get outside of the environment mm. because sometimes the environment can be so biased itself. And the things that I love to do, I love, I love to ski. I go, I've skied every year since I was four years old, mm. uh, snow skiing. Uh, I started heliskiing about 10 years ago. Define heliskiing. I'm not sure uh, what that is. Some people are like, you jump out of a helicopter? <laughs> they, they've watched too many Warren Miller films. Yeah. <laughs> I would say 8 to 12 times a day, the helicopter takes you to the top of the mountain. They rotate two groups of 10 people. Okay. And you're skiing fresh tracks in powder, depending mm-hmm. upon the year, anywhere from ankle deep to waist deep. Okay. Uh, skiing that powder down. And, and there's just, to me, there's nothing. First of all, it's I'm a good skier. Mm-hmm. So it, it becomes, to a large degree, effortless at times. Mm-hmm. And it's just such an exhilarating feeling being out there in nature and being up in that fresh air and so away from the concrete jungle that we spend so much time in. Yeah. I play golf. Uh, I find it challenging, but I also just find it fun to be out there yeah. um, socializing with people. And then I do um, I do some triathlons, mm-hmm. which I, I really you – know, I'm not a triathlete. At least some people would call me one, but I'm not. I don't do it because I'm just dying to be on the beach at 7 o'clock in the morning and go for it. I, yeah. I, I do it because it gives me motivation to stay in shape, to stay well, mm. and it doesn't get easier mm-hmm. as the years go by. Yeah. Uh, so it's something that I'm, I'm really focused on. Okay. Really good. I just got to circle back a little bit to the hell of skiing. I'm fascinated yeah. by this. So, so you go up. When you come down, 
how long of a run is that? Is it like five minutes and you got to wait for the next, you know, I call it joy, joy. Back at the top we go. Or like, oh, no, it's an experience that lasts 20 minutes or something. It depends. It can, yeah. it can take, um, you know, 15, 20 minutes depending upon which run it is, depending upon the quality of the snow, how concerned they are about the stability of the snow. Yeah. And the last factor, probably the biggest driving force, is the group is only as fast as the slowest gear. Yeah. We don't leave anybody behind. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah. But, I can but, see you that. Know, yeah. From, from, from a 9.30 start in the morning to a 3 o'clock finish, like I said, we'll get 8 to 12 runs of varying lines. That's a full day. Yeah. yeah. It's a full day. And that includes lunch on the mat. Oh, man. <laughs> that, that just sounds like so much fun. All these playgrounds we go to, I, sometimes I talk to you know, that work as a playground, right? Yeah. It should be a place you have fun, you know, yeah. inspired by, and then go home and go skiing. You know, that sounds like you have a lot of great playgrounds. Hey, we're coming up to the end of our time together. Before we go, though, do you have anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, I think the one thing that occurs to me, and, and maybe it's where my focus is now in terms of what I'm doing, which is, you know, mentor other people. Yeah. You know, if you find opportunities to build yourself up as a leader, there are people that are looking to you as that leader to help them grow mm. and, you know, pay it forward. Do yeah. do something to help them because I have a loyal following in various different pockets because of the people that I took the time to invest in. Mm. So there's a lot of selfishness that comes back from it. Yeah. But watching them grow and seeing them develop into leaders, you know, they're looking for somebody in this crazy world that we live in where it's hard to stand out. They're looking for somebody to take the time and do that for them. Well, that's great. And you were my mentor uh, and have helped me along the way. So, yeah, thanks Thanks for making time to come in and talk with us today and have our listeners talk to your expertise and and, uh, your wisdom. And and to all of our listeners, until next time, thank you for joining us. This is John Janclay saying bye for now. Hello, everyone. A few closing thoughts for you. If you were intrigued by today's interview with Dean and you'd like to learn more about his leadership approach, Know that Dean provides coaching on an individual basis, as well as providing leadership development programs for organizations tailored after a program that he designed, implemented, and facilitated while at 20th Century Fox. You can find Dean's contact information in today's show notes. I hope you reach out to him to learn more if you're interested. And I want to thank Dean for appearing on this month's show. Well, to everyone, I uh, hope you enjoyed today's interview. We'll have another great interview for next month. Bye for now, everyone. This is John signing off for C-Suite Interviews. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Big Cast C-Suite with John Janclays. To learn more or connect with John and the CEO Corner, please visit theceocorner.com. And we always welcome you to join in on our conversation. You can connect with the Big Cast Network directly by tweeting us at BigFintech, emailing us at info at big-fintech.com, or visiting our website at bigfintechmedia.com.